the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersom and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the Bee Gees and their worldwide smash hit to love somebody. Your name is? Colin. Yours? Morris. Barry. Robin. Vince. Our special guest is one of Australia's finest axemen, former Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, as well as the Bee Gees' original lead guitarist, Vince Maloney. The way I love you. The Bee Gees are one of the most successful acts in the history of rock and roll. On the list of high sailors of all time, they rank fourth. The only artists to have sold more records than the Bee Gees are the Beatles, Michael Jackson and Elvis. Now, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but I'm going to repeat that fact once again, because in terms of Australian music history and our impact on the world stage, it is simply incredible. The only artists to have sold more records than the Bee Gees are the Beatles, Michael Jackson and Elvis. In an earlier episode of Awesome Aussie Songs, we had a look at the Bee Gees' breakthrough Australian hit, Spicks and Specks, so check that out if you haven't already. However, you don't need to have listened to that episode before you listen to this one. The Gibb family immigrated to Australia from England in 1958 and settled in the suburb of Redcliffe, north of Brisbane. Here's Morris with help from his brothers talking to Bert Newton about how they came up with the name the Bee Gees. This is probably a question that you're asked so often, you're tired of it, and it shouldn't come from someone in Australia like myself, but once and for all, can you please tell us how you got the name the Bee Gees? Right. No problems, Bert. <laughs> yeah, um, well... It, it first starts with uh, Speedway. Right? The Speedway. Yeah. Do you want to take this? Oh, no. <laughs> it's a speed a Speedway in Redcliffe uh, outside Brisbane, uh, where we used to live. And uh, there was a, a racing driver called Bill Good, uh, a disc jockey called Bill Gates from 4BH in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sort of loved what we were doing. We played the, in between the races. Sometimes when the races were on, <laughs> it was hard picking money off the tracks. I can tell you. Uh, so we did it on the back of this truck, you know, and, uh, they saw us the next day they came round and, uh, they were discussing about, uh, doing an acetate for, uh, at uh, 4BH manage, yeah. and wanted to manage us. And there was the three initials of Barry, uh, Bill Gates, Bill Good, the brothers Gibb, and Barbara also Gibb. my mum, uh, my mum Barbara Gibb. So the initials BG, there was a lot of them about. So we were called BGs, which was B dot G apostrophe S in those days. Right. And we started to get more hip and add the E's. The Gibb brothers' next big break came when they met one of the biggest Aussie stars of the time, Cole Joy. He'd go on to become one of the brothers' greatest supporters. Here's Cole talking about the day he first heard the future superstars. Later on, I bought another recorder called a, a, a roller recorder. And it run at 15 inches a second, which was pretty flash. And uh, so we could record the backings and then we could overdub the vocals over. 
And I used to leave that at festival records and that was used by O'Keefe and Dig Richards and Nolene Batley and you know, anybody who come through. But when I went on tour, I, w- I took it with me. And a couple of occasions was one in Moree, which I recorded Judy Stone with Jimmy Little playing. Uh, I think I played bass badly and Jimmy played guitar and Judy sang, um, uh, my shoes keep walking back to you. And I took the thing down to the festival. I said, you've got to record this girl. She's, she's better than good. And, of course, Judy got onto festival records. And the same thing happened was um, at a party one night, well, late, one early, one morning, actually, I heard these three kids sing, and I said, wow, I've never heard anything like that. The harmonies were the first had go to the third, and the the third had go to the fifth, and they just did it normally. And these were 12 and 14 years old. So I said, tomorrow, come down to where I'm working, because it was on the Gold Coast, and... um, We'll record some songs. So we did four songs. And I've still got the tape somewhere. I'll find it one day. uh, Where he said, my name is Barry Gibb and I live at 26 Cambridge Avenue, Surface Paradise. And our first song is Let Me Love You. And they sang four songs. I took those to festival. And um, eventually we got a recording contract down here. Put them on the the Chubby Checker show at the stadium. And um, of course the whole family then moved down to Sydney. And that was Huey and Barbara. That was the mum and dad. And there was Barry, Robin and Morris and their, their sister, um, she was there, and little brother Andy. So uh, that was the BGs and they stayed at my house, I don't know, 12 months or something before they uh, really got on their feet. And our company managed them. They worked very hard. They'd do 16 shows a week. Over the years, plenty of critics have downplayed the BGs' Aussie connection, often making out that their time growing up in Australia had no real significance on their music. Here's Barry being interviewed by journalist Jeff Edges of the Washington Post. As you'll hear, Barry believes their formative years in Australia helped to shape them as musicians and it gave them the edge to take on the world. There's something about the Bee Gees, um, and I'm not a pop music critic or expert or whatever, but right. it's an interesting thing. Your, your group fell somewhere outside of everything else. I feel like there were the Beatles, there were the Who, there were the Kinks, there, but something about the Bee Gees was different. Am I, am I right about this? I think you are, and and I think that it's based on the way we grew up was very, very different than the way those other artists grew up. Mm. You know, we were an immigrant family in Australia. That comes with a lot of um, different elements that you wouldn't have experienced in America or England, um, as far as an international stage is concerned. We were totally influenced by Australian artists. Uh, Australia has its own show business world, and a lot of those people are not known anywhere else in the world but some of them are incredibly gifted and they're so far away from the rest of the world, they're perfectly happy with it. But their artists really rubbed off on us. My favorite of all time is, is still Cole Joy, who signed us to our first record contract. He was a big star. And uh, Billy Thorpe, who came along a little later and just blew everyone away. He was like, he was like Michael Jackson. Just blew what, what everyone they, away. These, these guys, I'm sorry, what do yeah. they sound like? I don't, I don't know them at all. I can't, well, I can't, I can't imitate Billy Thorpe, but you'll hear a lot of me if, when, you, when you hear Billy Thorpe because he was such an influence on me. If you're still not convinced what Australia meant to the Bee Gees, here's Barry talking to Liz Hayes and George Negus on the Today Show in 1988. 
Yeah, well, I've been a fan of Billy Thorpe since uh, since the very beginning of the Aztecs, which is um, Poison Ivy, and um, and uh, and I've always loved his voice, and, and I still consider it a great shame that he's not at the forefront now, and he should be. Um, I don't know where he is or what he's doing, but I'm still a fan. Yeah, it's just interesting that it all goes back to Australia, which yeah. is, is that home in any shape or form? It uh, has always been home to me. I've really? always considered myself to be Australian, um, even after I left Australia. In fact, I miss it more today than I ever have. And I'll probably go back and live there when I retire, should I ever retire. But even if I don't, at some point, I would like to live back there again. Yeah. yeah. You, Queensland, especially. Do you want to throw in a, a dirty question which you were going to ask? <laughs> yeah, come on, George. Go on, George. No, I, I actually saw, I think, uh, probably one of your first major concerts in Brisbane, because I grew up there too. It's a Louis Armstrong concert, and you and your brothers performed, and you were about 13, as I recall. No, I couldn't have been Louis Armstrong. Chubby Checker, maybe. That, that sounds more like it, Chubby Checker at Sydney Stadium. At the, at, was it at Sydney Brisbane Stadium? as well? Uh, it was Brisbane. We did the Chubby Checker yeah. tour of Australia. You're right. You're absolutely right. I'm you're glad right. I sorted that out. Yeah, right. Chubby <laughs> Checker. You were about 13, right? Yeah, that could be right. Uh, so, so your brothers would have been, what, nine? No, no doubt about you, George. You've always managed to bring out the best in everybody. Great. No, that's great. And I, when I see Chubby Checker today, I think it's amazing. I think yeah. it's interesting to bring that out because people forget that the Bee Gees really did start young, didn't they? Yeah. It's well documented that the Bee Gees released 13 singles and two albums in Australia that failed to chart nationally. A few singles had success on various state charts, but it wasn't until Spicks and Specs that they finally had a national hit record. After Spicks and Specs, the Gear Brothers may not have set the charts alight. However, for their future bandmate Vince Maloney, as the lead guitarist with Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, it was the exact opposite. Vince had a number one single with Poison Ivy, and then followed it up with a swag of hits, including their iconic version of Over the Rainbow. Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs were the biggest band in the land. Here's Vince. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Uh, that was in Sydney. We uh, Poison Ivy was number one in the charts in Sydney. And uh, when the Beatles came to Sydney, I think we were number one and they were like two, three, four and five or something. You know, they had various other songs there, but they couldn't knock us off the charts when they were in Australia. And another thing I just actually learned not long ago, when we played the Maya Music Bowl, uh, not the time of the Beatles, when we played the Maya Music Bowl, we got more people there than the Beatles has got. We had like 64,000 and they had something like 53,000. Long before Vince was asked to become a fully-fledged member of the Bee Gees, he lent his talent to the brothers and he recorded with the group at producer Ozzy Burns' small studio in Hurstville. They were, they were good, good mates of mine, you know. We met, uh, we met on uh, the Johnny O'Keefe show, 6 O'Clock Rock, and uh, mainly on um, television shows because uh, we were never really in the same place at the same time. Uh, as happens and um 
So they were recording at Aussie Burns Studio over at Hurstville. And um, I can't remember how it came together. It might have been because of Nat Kipner. And um, I went over there one day and they I, they said, will you put some guitar on these tracks? I said, sure, you know. So um, I don't remember what tracks they were. If I get to see, every time I've seen Barry, I've been meaning to ask him, but I forget about it. And um, I haven't seen him for a long time. But maybe next time, if I can remember, I'll say, what were those songs? And um, and they said, we'll put some vocals on your songs, some backing vocals, which they did. After the original Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs broke up in 1966, the band Vince formed was the Vince Maloney Sect. When recording with the sect, Vince called on the Gibb Brothers to add some backing vocals to two songs, Mystery Train... The other song the BG sang on was I Need Your Lovin' Tonight. For any BG aficionados looking to buy these songs, check out the Vince Maloney page on Bandcamp. Here's I Need Your Lovin' Tonight. I need your lovin' tonight, alright. I need your lovin' tonight. You're so sweet, what makes you complete is your arms around me tight. Don't you think about it. Say it's alright, say it's alright. I need your loving tonight. 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 Take the time to think about me and you think that I'm alright. You'll be glad that you had my arms around you tight. Don't you think about it? Don't you think about it? Say it's alright. Say it's alright. I need your love tonight. Here's Barry talking about how Australian audiences see the Bee Gees differently compared to the rest of the world. He's been interviewed on the UK morning TV show, Holly and Phil. They have, and Australia was, was wonderful because uh, that's where we grew up. And, and so they knew us as children. You know, we were children on television. We were a totally different thing than, uh, than England, you know. No one got to know us here until we were in our, you know, 18, 19 years old. We were, we were toddlers on television. Uh, I was very lanky and skinny, and Morris and Robin were very tiny 
Um, so if we did a show, the first TV show we ever did was in Brisbane, and they had to put Morris and Robin on T-chess. So, so we'd all fit into the show, you know. Vince decided it was time to try his luck in the UK. However, the trip, as well as an upcoming wedding, saw his finances stretched to the limit. To make a few extra bucks, he sold his stage clothes to Morris. He was getting married just before uh, we went to England. I didn't really want to get married. Uh, not because of the, the lady I married, uh, but it just seems foolish. You know, I was spending a lot of money on something that, you know, we could take a bit more money money with us. And my mother and father weren't, you know, the richest people in town. So I decided to sell everything, including my beautiful Epiphone guitar. So Morris and I were the same size, same height, same build. So I said to Morris one day, I'm selling all these clothes. And because Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, we were pretty smart, you know. We all had, we had really nice suits, beetle suits and beetle jackets and, you know, um, the pointy toe shoes, the beautiful shoe man who was around at the time. And by the, oh, I can't what they were called. They were, they were really lovely shoes and um, boots we had. And uh, so Morris said, I'd like, I'd like to buy some, you know. So I went over there one day with a, I must have borrowed my father's car and um, had a boot full of clothes. So he went through all the clothes and um, I, he bought them. So I, he helped helped me uh, and my wife get a ticket to England. And I, I, I said to him, you know, I'm selling all my stuff because I'm going to England. You know, I'm, I really want to see what's going on over there. And I could hear all their music. And he said, well, we're going to come up. We're going to England as well, in, you know, not long after you. And uh, I said, oh, that's great, you know, that's fantastic. You know, he said, maybe we'll meet up there. And I said, yeah, maybe, you know. While Vincent Morris had agreed it would be great to catch up in England, it was more general chit-chat rather than any set plans to meet. How Vince came to reconnect with the Gibb brothers once they were all in England came through some conversations he had by pure chance. Really cannot remember why. I just cannot figure it out. Uh, but what happened was, I got to know very briefly Long John Baldry. Nobody if I can find out how I can remember how I met Long John because Long John's a, um, a blues singer, right? And he took me out one night. He said, "I will go to this place, right?" And he took me to uh, this—I don't know where you call it—a club or it held about um, how many? Maybe two hundred and fifty people, maybe two hundred. Place was absolutely packed that's how small it was if you could remember to think of 200 people in a room and who was playing with the cream they hadn't reached their peak at that time and I, all i knew was eric clapton you know wow this is fantastic right so i don't know whether it was long john who told me about the easy beats but somehow or other i found out the easy beats were somewhere in England, in, in London, and I found out that they were living at Wembley Central, and I was living with my wife and a bedsitter at Finchley Central, and uh, so I can't remember. I got obviously got a phone number on them, phoned them up, and they said, come on over. So I went there, and I think um, they would just work. I think they were just about to bring out um, Friday on my mind, and Anyway, I called over to see them a few times. And one day when I was there, this guy 
I, I can't be very clear about this. So, but some guy, I'm pretty sure he was from the record company that they were involved with, and he said the Bee Gees are in town, and I said, "Aha, uh -huh, where are they?" And he said, "Uh, Hendon Central, right?" And I said, "Well, that's just up the road from where I am," and uh, I he gave me a phone number, so I called them up and. Uh, I can't remember who answered the phone, but I asked for Morris, and uh, Morris came on the phone, and he used to tell me, ah, oh, we've just been signed by this guy, Robert Stigwood, and it's all great. We're going in the studio next week. It's really fantastic. So he said, why don't you come and play guitar? So I said, I'd love to. That'd be fantastic. Prior to leaving Australia, Hugh Gibbs, the boy's father, sent their records and press clippings to all the major UK record labels and music managers, including the Beatles manager Brian Epstein at NEMS. Epstein obviously had his hands full with the Fab Four. However, he was impressed enough to hand the bundle of records over to fellow NEMS agent and expat Australian Robert Stigwood. After relocating from Adelaide to London, Stigwood had established himself as a manager on the rise, with his biggest success at that time being the band Cream, featuring Eric Clapton. Here's Barry talking about that early period when the Gibb family have arrived back in England. Well, we, we first arrived, we lived in Australia till about 1967, um, and then we came back to London to the midst of um, the Mersey boom, or the later stages of the Mersey boom. And um, we went to uh, NEMS, we took our tapes around as you do, you know, and you try to get a break. And uh, we went to uh, visit NEMS, and we didn't know Robert Stigwood at this time. And... Uh, we met him that day, and we also met on the same day Brian Epstein and Ringo Starr. And uh, I think you have to imagine being uh, young kids like us, walking into these offices and meeting these people. It's like uh, you are meeting legends in a way, and uh, it was a very exciting period for us. After auditioning the Gibb brothers, Stigwood signed the Bee Gees. However, he decided they wouldn't succeed as a trio, and they needed a drummer. This certainly wasn't a problem. Their good friend Colin Smiley-Peterson just happened to be in London and he was promptly added to the band. Back in Australia, Peterson had played on a majority of the Bee Gees' early singles. The Gibbs house at Maroubra was like his second home. He was great mates with Barry, Robin and Morris, having also lived in Redcliffe and attending the same school, Humpy Bong State School. At one stage, he even dated the brother's sister Leslie. Colin was pretty much part of the furniture. Like Vince, Colin had found fame before the Gibbs, first as a child star drumming with some of Brisbane's most popular jazz and big bands of the time, and then as a child actor in the title role of the worldwide box office smash hit film Smiley. Decades before films like Crocodile Dundee took on the world, the Smiley franchise of films saw cinemas all over the globe filled with audiences watching Cole as the little blonde kid Smiley. He starred alongside acting greats like Chips Rafferty. While acting was fun, at heart, Colin was a drummer, and a fine one at that. Here's part of a scene from the 1958 film, Smiley Gets a Gun. So I shot off not knowing where to go. And when I'd run for hundreds and hundreds of miles, I saw your can, and... Uh, you've done the wrong thing running away, Smiley. That's the last thing you should have done. But I'm a fugitive from justice. I'm an outlaw with a price on my head. If they ever catch me now, I'll spend the rest of my life in jail. Smiley, when a bloke's innocent... His best chance is to face up to the music and let justice take its course. I'm going to take you back. No! Ah, uh, 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 come on now. You leave this to me. Let me go! <laughs> it's no surprise that Morris was keen to get Vince into the studio, 
Back in Australia, when he was an Aztec, he was regarded as one of the hottest lead guitarists in the country. Now Vince had agreed to do some new recordings with the Bee Gees. He only had one problem, he'd sold his guitar in Australia. However, the Easy Beats legend Harry Vender came to his rescue. I got the address and of course I didn't have a guitar. So I asked Harry and Harry was so kind enough to lend me his Gibson 335. And um, it was a stereo, Gibson Stereo 335. And um, so I went to the end of the studio, which was um, it just off Oxford Square, off Oxford Circus, and uh, in this beautiful street of all these uh, Georgian, I think they are, these, um, these buildings, they're all joined together, but they're beautiful design. And um, so I went in the, the studio, I can't remember, there was this great big door, this massive, massive door, at least twice my height, if not more. Uh, and uh, you'd ring a an intercom system they opened the door you know so I went in went up the stairs and there they were you know so uh, you know we'd give each other a hug and said hey how you doing I don't know whether to give a hug we shook, shook hands at the time probably and uh, and uh, so said, yeah, hey how was the trip you know great to see you you're looking good da 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 right and then they said this is Colin Peterson I'd never met Colin before, strangely enough, in all of our travels in Australia. I, um, I never met him. So Colin and I got along really well. And um, he was a, a, a nice, really nice man and a great drummer. He was a great drummer. He was the perfect drummer for the Bee Gees, the perfect drummer. He didn't just play boom, crash, boom, crash. He was really into it. And he was a very creative player. In Vince's first session with the newly formed four-piece Bee Gees, they recorded New York Mining Disaster 1941. Here's the Gibb brothers talking to Michael Parkinson on his BBC talk show about how they came to write the song. New York Mining Disaster is one of my favourite songs, but where did it come from, I mean, the idea for that? Well, uh, Polydor Records, yeah, please. It came actually, it was written in a very sort of strange place for, a, for that type of song. It was written in the basement of Polydor Records at Stratfield Court in London. And with, with all the lights out, we write our songs in very, very peculiar places. Yeah. And uh, it, it was on stairs in the dark. And I suppose, you know, because it was the atmosphere, you know, I mean, we didn't realize, of course, it was midday and it was right in the middle of the offices of Polydor at the very time. But, you know, but the lights were out anyway. Now, we just we wrote the song. But, but, what, was the thought, see each other. but what was the thought line in New York Mining Disaster? It had to be well, the New York Mining Disaster. No, we made it up. Well, uh, well there was a mining disaster in New York about 1935, but didn't relate to the song at all. It was in the state um, of New York. We made it up, we were just sitting in the dark and we couldn't see each other. And that was where the idea sprang from. So what would it be like trapped in, a, say, a mine, for instance, and you can't see each other? Can we write something about that? Yeah. Um, we're very pessimistic people. Yeah. <laughs> 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 At the same token, we wanted a song that, that, as it was our first single in England, we wanted a song to draw attention as well. So a title like that was not to be dismissed. You know, well, the idea in those days was to come up with the most ridiculous title you could come up with. Right. We didn't want to, I mean, Matt Monroe could not have recorded this song. <laughs> 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 well, will you, will you play it for us now? Yeah, sure. I love this song. Yeah, I'm happy. In the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see. 
It's just a photograph of someone that I knew. Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you cause a landslide, Mr. Jones. I keep straining my ears to hear a sound. Maybe someone is digging underground. Or have they given up and all gone home to bed? Thinking those who once existed must be dead. Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you cause a landslide, Mr. Jones. With Vince, the Bee Gees knew they had one of Australia's finest lead guitarists in their midst, and one they didn't want to let get away. I was there for about, I was a, a paid session sing, session player for about maybe a month, and um, we had a meeting. They asked, called me to a meeting with Robert Stigwood, and that's when Barry and the guys said uh, we want Vince to be an official member of the band, you know. So he said, fine. And um, so that was it. Yeah, uh, the BG in um, roughly about April 1967. Now a five-piece band, the BGs really started to gel. We liked what each other did. So, yeah, we were all on the same page, you know. I mean, we used to, before, when, when we'd go in the studio, Morris, Colin and I would get a launch into some rock and roll thing, you know. And uh, I really liked the cream, so we used to do, you know, strange brew and uh, just just messing around in the studio, you know. And, um, yeah, it was good. So they knew before, uh, before I actually uh, went to England, before I met up with them again, they already knew about my playing. They'd heard my playing on the, the Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs tracks that were played and where if they ever saw us live and, they knew, and then I, when I came out to do the couple of tracks with them. New York Mining Disaster 1941 was a top 20 hit in the UK, reaching number 12, and it also made the charts in France, Germany, Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands and Australia. In America, it made the Billboard Hot 100, coming in at number 14. Just as the Bee Gees had been inspired by the likes of the Everly Brothers, their own songwriting talents would go on to inspire a fellow legend in the making. And the funny thing I heard not long ago that, uh, well, I heard a while ago, it was commented again recently, that um, David Bowie, when he heard New York Money Disaster, it inspired him to write uh, Major Tom, Space Oddity. Yeah, what about that, eh? It's incredible. Um, when I tour and uh, I come out and they introduce me and we do that song, the crowd just go bananas. Like it's, you know, it's such an it's such an iconic song. You know, it's incredible. Barry's inspiration to write to love somebody was soul legend Otis Redding. The American had many hits, 
Two of his best-known songs are Try A Little Tenderness and, of course, Sitting On The Dock Of The Bay. Redding never got the opportunity to record To Love Somebody, sadly dying in a plane crash just a few months later. Here's Vince. Well, that song was originally written for Otis Redding, and uh, I got to meet Otis. It was very brief, but I got to meet him. I shook his hand, or he shook my hand, whatever way you want to put it. And uh, he was... uh, he was coming into town and Robert Stigwood said to Barry, you know, write a song for, uh, for Otis, you know. And uh, Barry came up with To Love Somebody, which has become, you know, buddy, kind of a historical, I don't know what you call it, <laughs> incredible. But uh, and I, I used to also, Rob uh, Morris as well, we used to visit the uh, Speakeasy quite a lot. And um, that's where I met Otis. He was in town, and um, I, he was speaking with Robert. I think they were already talking about this uh, to love somebody. And um, but he, he, yeah, there he was. He said, "This is Vince." I said, "Hey, you doing?" And um, I met Otis. Yeah, it was really cool. Obviously, with this episode, we're focusing on the 1967 version of the Bee Gees. However, we can't not talk about the worldwide phenomenon that they would go on to become, especially during the Saturday Night Fever era. Mind-boggling statistics like these are just insane. Six consecutive number one songs on the American Billboard Hot 100 charts. With that level of success, there came plenty of backlash as well. The Bee Gees were also easy game for comedians all around the world, whether it was the silver disco suits, the chest hair, the big medallions or the falsetto voices there were certainly plenty of opportunities for some good humoured laughs in their direction. Rather than being offended by the parodies, the Bee Gees mostly revelled in the fun. Some of the classic skits include this from the Kenny Everett TV show. You're in the middle of a world tour and have just finished sell-out concerts here in London. Why is it, do you think, that millions of people love your music? Because we're living in a world <laughs> I see. Some people have implied that your high voices, coupled with the long hair, shirt open to the navel, revealing hairy chest and medallion look, suggest that you're somewhat less than masculine, and that you... Look the other way! (laughs) Exactly. What do you say to that? Ha, ha, ha! I see. So you you poo-poo the less than masculine slur, do you, Barry? Well, you can't tell by the way I use my walk on the woman's name. In the early 2000s, Saturday Night Live kept the laughs coming with the Barry Gibb talk show featuring Jimmy Fallon as Barry and Justin Timberlake as Robin. Comedy tributes don't come any bigger or funnier than this. If you haven't seen any of these skits before, as Molly would say, do yourself a favour and check them out on YouTube. For those of you who have seen SNL's Barry Gibb talk show before, you already got the visuals in your head, here's a quick reminder. Talking it up. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Barry Gibb. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. This is my show, and this is a no-nonsense show. I'm not going to take any crap from nobody. 
Sing the next guest's name. Cross, burst of Montage. Talking about Cross, burst of Montage. Yes, sir, Lieutenant Governor, huh? First of all, uh, it's delightful how you're saying my name and you're singing it like that. I love it. I'm a real big fan. When I was growing up, I thought you guys were like the greatest band around. Oh, yeah, huh? You, you, you thought, we, thought we were the greatest. You hear that, Robin? We were. Were, huh? Don't you ever talk to me like that again! I'm Barry Gab! You know what that means? I put this whole show together. I'm Barry Gab. I will put you in the ground. I'll put you in the ground. I'll put you in the ground. Yeah. Put you in the ground, yeah. Use my brother, tell me, put you in the ground, yeah. Hundreds of artists over the years have covered to love somebody, although none more iconic than Janis Joplin. I never knew Janis uh, Joplin, but uh, she recorded one of our songs, and we were always grateful for that. Um, she recorded uh, To Love Somebody. And uh, once again, we were knocked out by that. Um, with In that area to, as well, uh, Elvis Presley recorded Words, which was uh, another great moment for us, you know. We love these people and we follow them for years and to have somebody sing one of your songs like someone like that is uh, uh, something you can't explain. But you don't know, you don't know what it's like. No, you don't, no, no, no. You don't know, but you don't know what it's like. What a love anybody. Oh, baby, I want to talk about it to yourself. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones had made London the centre of the musical universe, and it was a huge melting pot of talent. One of Barry's close friends of the time was guitar god Jimi Hendrix. And uh, I came to know Jimi Hendrix a little bit better than uh, I knew most other artists. Um, in fact, he came to my 21st birthday party in, um, I think it was in Holland. We were doing television over there at some stage, and there was Dave D, Dozy Beaky McIntyre. I remember them very well. And um, Jimi Hendrix was the kind of opposite personality that you would expect him to be on stage. Very warm, very quiet. Um, nothing like uh, nothing like the that person standing on stage that you didn't feel that you could get near. You know, nice man. It's a great, great shame we lost him. This is Barry reminiscing about those early days in the UK. This was just prior to flower power and um, uh, caftans and flowers in your hair and all that business, which we were ready to adopt. Everybody did, you know. It didn't affect us any differently. Everyone wanted to be the same. And, uh, and that's interesting, too, when you think about it, how quickly everybody followed that situation. Um, I guess some of the most exciting times of the 60s were going to uh, the late-night clubs after you finished work, after you finished doing your gig. You'd go down to uh, the Speakeasy, which was the center, where most of the artists uh, uh, would gather and uh, eat and chat and listen to the music. 
And um, in those days, you would see as many as uh, 10 to 15 major artists in the same restaurant or in the same room, totally disregarding each other and and um, and doing whatever they wanted or just enjoying themselves. I met John Lennon in the Speakeasy. Uh, I also met Brian Jones and uh, a few of the Stones down there. Uh, they were everywhere. It was incredible. As I mentioned earlier, the Gibb brothers have usually played along with the laughs, and they've never been shy of taking the mickey out of themselves either. Here's a classic from the Howard Stern Show in 1993. To set the scene of this skit, it was at a time just after the American housewife Lorena Bobbitt caught her husband John cheating, and I'm sure you probably remember now what happened next. It involved Lorena, a large kitchen knife, and John's manhood. This song parody kind of goes with the to love somebody theme of this episode. Well, sort of. Medical bills, please. It's the new year. And if I can't convince you, watch this piece of tape. The following message is brought to you by the National Addictomy Foundation. You'll never know in this life. I hope you'll never know what it's like to lose your penis. To lose your penis the way I lost mine. Hi, I'm Morris. I'm Barry. And I'm the other BG, Robin. We are brothers and we share a lot. Our love of music. Our love of people. And most of all, we share a single experience. We all live with our penises. John Bobbitt almost lost his penis. But advanced medical procedures saved it. But it's not over. Medical costs are staggering. So please help. Don't ever piss off your wife. Fellas, don't ever piss off your wife. You lose your penis, you lose your penis, the way I lost mine. The National Adendictomy Foundation, because a stitch in time saves nine. Here's Robert Stigwood talking about Barry, Robin and Morris and their talent as songwriters. That extraordinary talent in songwriting, that is that just a talent you're born with or a talent you nurture or what? Uh, it, you have to be born with it in their case. Uh, it's not something uh, that you, anyone can ever learn. It's totally with them instinctive. And it's so fast. To Love Somebody was recorded in April 1967 and was released on the Polydor label. The song featured Barry on lead and backing vocals and rhythm guitar, Robin with harmony and backing vocals, Morris playing bass as well as backing vocals, Colin on drums, and Vince on lead guitar. The orchestral arrangement was by Bill Shepard. It was written by Barry and Robin and was produced by Ozzy Byrne and Robert Stigwood. When To Love Somebody was released in July, it had instant success everywhere except in the UK. It was a top 10 hit in Australia, Belgium, Germany, Canada, and South Africa. And on the American Billboard Hot 100, it reached number 17. In England, it didn't even make it to the top 40, peaking at 41. Nina Simone would cover the song and release it two years later, and this time around, it was a top five hit in the UK. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's To Love Somebody by the Bee Gees.
listening to awesome Aussie songs. Thanks to Vince for your time and thanks to the Bee Gees for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, hit it girl.